Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll talk to a local filmmaker who spent a decade making a documentary about an effort to build a school in Haiti. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review Steppenwolf Theater's latest. Later in the show, I'll be chatting with the author of a new book that dives into the music of the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. And we'll look back at the life and career of celebrated pianist Ramsey Lewis. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. An estimated 220,000 people were killed, over 300,000 were injured, and 1.5 million people were left homeless when a 7.0 magnitude earthquake struck Haiti on January 12, 2010. The aftermath was brutal as the island nation was forced to deal with a gigantic humanitarian crisis. There was an immediate outpouring of support to help in Haiti's recovery. On one end of the spectrum, there was of course an international response from other countries that sent aid. But on the other side of the spectrum, details of the dire situation also inspired individuals to get involved. While some people donated money, others wanted to do more. Local filmmaker Jack Newell was one of those people. The Chicago-based director heard a series of stories on public radio about a Haitian community struggling to rebuild its school. He then learned about a semi-retired construction manager from Colorado that was raising money to go to the village and rebuild the school himself. Believing a documentary might be able to do some good by shedding light on the story, Newell reached out to some of the stakeholders involved in the project and began working on a film. That was in 2010. Twelve years later, that documentary, now titled How Not to Build a School in Haiti, is getting its premiere at the Gene Siskel Film Center in Chicago. Newell's initial idea of illuminating an uplifting story gradually turned into something more complex as he got deeper into the project. I recently caught up with Newell to talk about his long journey to making How Not to Build a School in Haiti. Over the the years I've talked to you about your various film projects, and the past couple times we've spoke, you've mentioned this documentary uh, about a school in Haiti that you've been working on for years, and I always like ask you for an update. Now it's finally making its uh, Chicago premiere at the Cisco Center. So how long have you been working on this project? Yeah, it's funny you say that because my wife Rebecca, who you know, she's she's like I'm she's like I'm I'm happy that you're getting done with this film. She's proud of me and all that stuff. But she's also, like, secretly a little bit happy, I guess not so secret because I'm sharing it on the radio, <laughs> that I'm done with the film so people can basically, like, stop asking me about it because it's been taking uh, 10 years. I started filming in June of 2011, which was about mm, a little over a year after the earthquake that struck Port-au-Prince in January of 2010. And then we filmed from 2011 to 2016 because the point was to follow this group who were building a school down there. And it's because they were building and fundraising and had to do meetings with the community, it took them about five years to actually complete this project and then part of it was also about being able to just see what was the aftermath and so you know once the school is open and all that then finally the the final 
period of time is that it just takes a while. You know, when you have 300 hours of footage, it just takes time to figure out what your story is going to be. So that's sort of the, the general timeline. Right, right. I read something that was the initial rough cut, like 12 hours. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of, when we got it all together and we finally were able to get it going, to get to 12 hours was a lot of work. I mean, that, for someone who doesn't know, they might be like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. But it's like, those were scenes that were somewhat shaped. Now the cut that you see that you're, everyone's going to be able to see on Tuesday at Gene Siskel is 90 minutes. So a lot has been cut out. Right. So let's back up and go to the, the kind of the beginning of uh, how this came to be. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners will remember the the devastating 2010 uh, earthquake that struck Haiti, and that was in the news for for a long time. Though I think the reverberations of, of that have been you know are ongoing, even though maybe it doesn't get as much attention. But it was a a story you heard on, on public radio that kind of inspired this specific idea of uh, to make this documentary? Yeah, that's right. So after the earthquake hit, um, a, a program called NPR's Planet Money uh, with Adam Davidson and Caitlin Kenny were doing reporting on how aid was impacting uh, Haiti. And they had a couple different stories, but one of them was focusing in on rights. The earthquake struck, you know, not even Port-au-Prince technically, it struck a town near Port-au-Prince called Leogane, but basically urban areas. And so an earthquake didn't strike like their food production facilities. And so what you ended up finding was that actually, you know, this free influx of rice from the, from abroad, from America mostly, was crashing the local rice economy. And so they started digging into that more. And this opened up this idea of just sort of the unintended consequences of aid. They met this man named Anselm Simplice, who was the principal of a school, uh, Le Colbethahem in Villard, was the name of the town. And he was running his school out of a church. So during the day it was school. And then on the weekends, it was it was church. And, you know, it wasn't a great situation because kids were you had four grades going on, you know, in, and then you had a couple of sheds out back by the toilet. And that wasn't great. The NPR reporters painted a pretty sort of harrowing picture, you know, what was happening here. And so I also listened to the follow up NPR reporting where they said that a, a guy from Colorado, Tim Myers, who was a semi-retired uh, construction manager, heard the story and was, he was also wanted to help out. So I reached out to Tim and Fred, who were the two gentlemen who started, and uh, said, hey, I'd love to film you to try to just follow this project and see if I can, you know, I can't make a school. I'm interested. I want to help. Like, could a film help? And that's where it all started. You narrate the doc, so you're telling the audience how you're feeling and how your own views maybe are, are changing as you're, you're making this. As you kind of alluded to, there, there's a, a complexity to, to Haiti. There's a complexity to this uh, story. Was that something that was a gradual shift for you where you realized that uh, the story we're trying to tell was going to be more complex, or did you figure that out pretty quickly? That's a really good question. It was my first time in a quote-unquote place like Haiti, meaning a developing economy, a place that's that level of poverty and what they deal with there. To say it's gradual is to be wrong in that well, as soon as you get there, you know that this place is very different than where you're from. And then you start to see, okay, I can see how this is going to be hard or difficult or complicated, right? I still believe then and do believe now that if you're in a position to help, you should help. And I think Americans absolutely are in a position to help. We have so much. And so, and I believe that there's people that can do good, you know, and I think Tim with his ability to to engineer and build safe structures like that's inherently good but it does just get complicated when cultures come together and that's part of what the film is tracking is this own journey through that yeah it's interesting because uh, as a viewer we're watching tim and he goes into this with such good intentions and i think a lot of us maybe feel like we know where this is 
is going, but then there are all these curveballs because of the complexity of the, the situation in Haiti. So was your hope that the viewer would figure things out as we watch Tim have to go through some of these challenges? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak, you know, for Tim. I guess you're not asking me to. I guess you're asking what did I experience, you know, <laughs> having with him. But, like, yeah, you know, he spent significantly more time down. Like, you know, we would go down and film for a week or two. But, you know, Tim, and maybe we arrived with Tim. Uh, sometimes we arrived and Tim's already there. So he, he had a lot more, and he was, you know, on site every day. You know, it's hard because you know, the documentary is showing a really well-intentioned guy who's very smart and – He's just trying to make it happen. He's just, he wants, he's going to build the building and he's just trying to make it happen. And you're watching essentially their first at bat, you know? And so there's mistakes that are made. And that's hard because they've gone on now to build many schools. And I'm sure the schools that they're building now are, I'm sure the process is a lot more figured out. I think it's safe to say, in my experience, it, my own personal experience watching Tim and then with all the folks I know and anyone who does this work in developing economies, it changes you because. It has to. There's no way you couldn't. Because it's so, it calls into question everything you know about being basically an American, I would say. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek, and I'm talking with Chicago based filmmaker Jack C. Newell about his new documentary, How Not to Build a School in Haiti. What do you remember about those first days in Haiti? <laughs> what I remember is my first trip down, we were just leaving Port au Prince to go up to Villard to really film the beginning of the, the documentary in my mind and I had a bottle of water that I put in my camera bag and then didn't close my bottle of water right and destroyed my camera so before I even filmed a thing basically I had destroyed my camera oh man and so that was my introduction to this project was I, I've I heard a story on the radio on a lark basically like reached out to Tim and Fred they said yes join me join us I'm like I'm gonna make a movie that's gonna show how like Americans can like make it better you know and immediately i'm in i'm there and i destroy my camera essentially defeating the purpose for me going at all because i can't capture anything and so what i remember was just like the scramble and going around and you know me and sebastian who's the translator in the film and, and one of the producers in the project just trying to find another camera and just trying to like all the problems you know we finally found a camera it was like a jvc handicam from like the 1990s and and it only worked when plugged in and i was like fine no problem i'll just shoot it by a wall it's like, yes, but you're shooting in a village where there's no reliable power. <laughs> you know, it's just these things you don't think about, right? And so we had to plug it into Sebastian's converter that was run out of his truck. And so I was like, okay, good, we solved that problem. And then it would overheat every 10 minutes. So basically I had like 10-minute takes where I could just – and interviews take longer than 10 minutes. You know, you want to talk to them for 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes, maybe more. And with the translation, it actually slows you down by more than, by like more than half because you have to wait for both sides. And so, I mean, that, that was my first – thing so that's what i remember is just being like feeling like a complete idiot and failure and then just buckling down and be like we got to do this we got to film film it we got to make it happen and finding a way i think it's important to mention that the film doesn't try to provide a solution or advocate for a specific change it's really about shining a light on this situation and, and maybe opening some eyes but if we dig a little deeper just if you are an american and want to help a haitian cause do you have any recommendations? Is that something you feel comfortable talking about? <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good. It's an. It's an. That's another good question. I can speak a little bit about why we didn't want to be prescriptive, and I think, and then I will. I'll get to your question for sure. A lot of times in documentaries like this, you know, the filmmaker is going to be prescriptive about 
what is the answer here? And I just don't think that's necessarily the role for the filmmaker. I think as artists, our job are to provoke and to create stories that are impactful, either emotionally or, or intellectually, and to engage in conversation. And so I get I bristle against films that get a little bit too much like, this is the answer. And I'm not saying I don't understand that impulse or I don't understand what, why that, where that's coming from. And it's something we grappled with in the film because a lot of earlier cuts in the film went so far away from trying to provide answers or call to action at the end of it that it was an unsatisfying experience, which is interesting just to watch it and be like, wow, why is this unsatisfying? It's like, for the basic reason of what I'm trying to do, makes it very unsatisfying. And so the film, we finally found, I think, a, a decent course to try to ask those questions, pr- prompt thought, and then basically say, we don't know what the answer is. Now, with all that as preamble to answer your question of what can people do, maybe it's talking and, and getting to know more people in the, in the community. It's trying to find out, are there things that are already happening there that you can support as opposed to starting something of your own? I think that you'd be surprised at how many struggling communities actually have a lot of programs that are already trying to address the things that you would think should be addressed, but they're underfunded, they're underpublicized, you know, maybe they need some organizational help. And there's a lot of different things that could, you know, spawn out of that. So, and, you know, I think Tim, you know, and Haiti School Project in the, in the film do a did a good job with that they had a lot of meetings ahead of time and you know there were still challenges so even that it's not even like a silver bullet this is sort of my answer honestly which is that's the main thing is that there's no silver bullet and a lot of times what you find in aid conversations is people are like if we could just do x then we're going to fix these problems and if the film is trying to talk about anything it's saying like there is no magic bullet there is no silver bullet there's not one way you cannot come in with a single intervention and fix it and again, we're talking about Haiti. We're talking about a single school in rural Haiti. You can imagine how this extrapolates out to any conversation, really about anything. I mean, like American government, you name it, international or domestic. Like, we have this fascination with the silver bullet of like, God, if we just do this one thing, that would help. The thing that Tim deserves credit for is that he did this project, and it was hard, and he kept doing it. And I think that that's what I would say to someone is like, if you're going to help, and you want to help, it's like, you can't just give up when it gets hard you have to really commit because probably the best work you're going to be able to do in any of these communities is not one trip down or one year in it's in year seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen, 15, you know, 30, when you've been doing it for a lifetime. And I, I'm hearing you say that and be like, well, that's really, that's rich Jack. Cause I'm just a <laughs> filmmaker who's following them. Like I don't have to commit my life to, you know, but you know, that, that is, that is my answer. I would say. Fair enough. And then the last thing, just we're talking as the, the documentary is getting its uh, Chicago premiere at, it has to be, like, given how much time you you spent on this, what are your feelings as now it's getting its uh, theatrical premiere? It's funny because every feature film I've made, I've made while I'm making the Haiti film. So my essentially my entire filmography right now, I've been making the Haiti film in the background. And so I always thought that, like, as soon as the film was done, I was going to, like, break into tears and just start crying. And that hasn't happened yet. It might happen at the screenings. I mean, I guess, you know, people have to come and find out if they get to witness me <laughs> cry in public. Um, I think it's probably going to be more like the next films I work on when, you know, I'd be working on a film and then like during the daytime working on that film and then at night moonlighting on the Haiti dock or working on that film in the daytime and then on downtime thinking about the Haiti dock, you know, and so now that it's out of my life in that way, it feels good. I mean, I, I'm happy with the film. I think it's, I, I think it, it does a lot what we wanted it to do and I'm, encourage when people watch it and they connect with it and so as soon as you make a film or a piece of art it's not yours anymore it doesn't belong to you it belongs to the audience and so for me i'm sort of done with it like i've moved on and now it's just exciting how you get to engage with people when they watch it and they share their stories 
We've got the screening coming up on Tuesday at the Gene Siskel Film Center, and then you're taking it to some other theaters around the country. Any plans for it to get a, a wider distribution uh, as far yeah. as like home release? Yeah, so um, we're doing another screening in the Chicagoland area in November, and then we are also doing... Uh, there's a couple different names for it, community screenings, outreach screenings. But if anyone's hearing this and they have a group, either a church group or an NGO that does work in Haiti, or just a group that does anything sort of in this aid space, we have, if they go to our website, www.hadyschooldoc.com, they can email to set up a screening for their group. Um, and we're doing a lot of those this fall. And then in 2023, winter, spring, we will be getting it on to, you know, streaming, the streaming platforms, all that. Well, Jack, it's always a pleasure. Good luck with everything. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for the for the conversation, and um, yeah, I appreciate you uh, wanting to talk about it. That's Jack C. Newell. He's the director of the new documentary, How Not to Build a School in Haiti. It's playing at the Gene Sisko Film Center Tuesday, September 20th. You can find more information at the film's website, HaitiSchoolDoc.com. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm joined remotely now by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Two and a half years ago, the three of us sat in a studio in the River North neighborhood recording a review for Timeline Theater's Kill Move Paradise. It was the last time we gathered in person to record one of these review segments. The pandemic erupted shortly after, and we've been recording remotely since. The reason I I bring up that review is because Kill Move Paradise, which you both highly recommended, was written by James Imes, who's also responsible for the work we're going to be talking about this morning. Steppenwolf Theater is presenting the Chicago premiere of the most spectacularly lamentable trial of Ms. Martha Washington, a play which premiered in Philadelphia back in 2014. The play was supposed to make its Chicago premiere in the spring of 2020, and of course that didn't happen. Already an acclaimed and ascending playwright back in the winter of 2020, Imes' stock has continued to soar. He won a Pulitzer Prize this year for his newest play, Fat Ham. Today our focus is on Ms. Martha Washington, directed by Whitney White. The play reimagines with humor what our country's first lady's last dying days might have, could have been like. Jonathan, what are your thoughts? I think that this is as good a piece of theater as you will find anywhere in Chicago right now. And who knows, maybe all The reason why is that it's a perfect marriage of a playwright, James Yams, as you have already said, and a director, Whitney White, who approaches this non-realistic play as if it were a musical. She drives it along with a fast pace and wonderful, really choreographed movement and striking stage pictures. She has a a cast of seven. They're all physically fluid and vocally very sharp, although your ears may need to adjust to the old-timey slave dialect that the characters frequently use, but not all the time. The play, as you said, Gary, is a a take on our first First Lady, Martha Washington. It's a satirical history pageant set at Mount Vernon shortly before Martha Washington died in 1802, which is just three years after George Washington died. And it's about Martha and her slaves, the enslaved people, 
uh, on her estate and her relationship with them. There are highly theatrical devices and exaggerations at work, but it's based on several pertinent actual facts having to do with the legal complexities of inheriting slaves in that pre-emancipation era, as well as the complexities of actually freeing them. Carrie, what was your first reaction to this play? Well, I, I, like you, think it's one of the strongest pieces we've seen this year. I've been a fan of Yimes' work for some time now. Uh, I think it's interesting that, Gary, you tied it in with Kill, Move, Paradise, because I don't know that our listeners will remember that far back. Who remembers anything from you know, pre-pandemic? Right. But that play was set in a sort of purgatory where black men who had been murdered by the police sort of descend and are you know, kind of confronting what happened to them. This play is more of a dream hellscape. I don't know exactly what would be the right way to describe it, but it's definitely not realistic. Anyone who's thinking this is going to be any kind of a docudrama, biodrama, will be sorely disappointed. But if you're looking for something that really highlights the salient points of a story, I think this is going to be a very strong pick. The question, as you, as you noted, really comes down to what can Martha do to free the slaves? Now, historically, she was a very wealthy widow when George married her, and part of her wealth came from slaves that she inherited from her late husband's estate. Uh, from what I've read, she legally was not allowed to free them. However, George had you know, the, the several many slaves of his own, um, and he had written in his will that they would be freed upon her death. So there's a question as to whether at least part of the people who are enslaved at Mount Vernon could have been freed earlier, uh, prior to her death. And, you know, she's just kind of bouncing around and trying to avoid looking at that issue. And at the same time, you know, I think one of the subtexts too, is this idea of what actually makes up family in slavery. One of her, as Martha views her, boon companions, who is an enslaved woman named Anne Dandridge, is not only her half-sister because of the father's rape of Anne's mother, but also the mother of a boy who is the product of rape via Martha's stepson. And if this is complicated, the, the, the young man in question who visits her in a dream says, it's complicated, which is a interesting comment on how even the bedrock principles of like family and faith are all kind of filtered through in our American dream or our, or our American nightmare, depending on how you look at it, through the context of slavery. What I liked, Jonathan, was that I felt like it took me in surprising directions, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what your experience with it was. Well, I thought the relationship that you just pointed out is the crucial one in right. the play, and it's Historical fact, there was a real person named Anne Dandridge, and she had a son, and it is very likely, though not proved beyond doubt, that Anne Dandridge was the illegitimate half-sister of Martha Washington, <laughs> so that her son was her illegitimate, Martha's illegitimate nephew. And the play really uses this potent connection, uh, and what it says about how common miscegenation was in the Old South, it uses this connection to examine the emotional and psychological roots of enslavement, not just among those enslaved, but those who own or control slaves, as Martha Washington did. It's only 90 minutes long, but most of it is a dream sequence, dreamed by the ailing, bedridden Martha. And in it, as I understood the play, she comes to understand and acknowledge the really twisted nature of enslavement, only to resist her own understanding of it at the end, as she kind of comes out of this dream. It's almost as if Martha instinctively understands the horrors 
but consciously denies that understanding. Yeah, I think that's really powerful, because I think when we ask ourselves, why won't people do these things that are right? I mean, it seems so on the surface, it's absolutely right to free enslaved people. So once we go through all the legal rigmarole, it comes down to, yeah, but I really don't want to, or, well, this is just the way things are, or I'm not comfortable. You know, all the excuses that we all make continually (laughs) for not always doing the right thing. So I think that's part of the genius of this, and we're not hammered over the head with it by any means, I don't think, but it's not just indicting Martha Washington. That would be, you know, fish in a barrel, because, yes, she was the first first lady, but she wasn't a voting member of, you know, she had a lot of money. I'm not saying she did not have power. She absolutely did. But even her power was less compared to what her husband's was. So, it, but it's really about when you can do the right thing, what stops you? You know, and it's also stubbornness. It's like digging in your heels and saying, you know what, the more you push me, the more I'm just going to do the opposite. Yeah, there's a little element of that, too, and I think that's also a big part of the American character that Gams gets absolutely right in this play. Uh, I want to pick up on one thing that you mentioned just a couple of moments ago, kind of in passing, Uh, and that's, you know, it's worth noting that this play was first produced, as Gary said in the introduction, in 2014. So that's six years before the Black Lives Matter movement and cancel culture sprung up. Yet this play fits quite easily into both of those. Though it does, and this is the point you made, it avoids the sledgehammer approach of some more recent plays that really are products of the movements of the last two years. So this avoids the sledgehammer approach, but nonetheless uses amusing methods to promote white guilt. Now, I really can speak only for myself. I see a lot more plays than, you know, this, let's say the average list, listener does. You do too, Carrie. Mm-hmm. I can only speak for myself, but I don't have a need to see more plays about historic racism in America. I don't, I acknowledge it. It's mm-hmm. there. But I don't think we need to define the problem anymore uh, right. and focus on the history. We need to construct answers and solutions. And I very much want to see what our very finest artists, and James Young's is one of them, I want to see what our very finest artists, artists, I want to see them look ahead rather than back. Exactly. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think what's also present here is, you know, there's there's also some joy. They have a very, not joy necessarily. This is a, I mean, it's a very loaded term to use that, but there is a celebratory quality, particularly for the people who know that they're imminently going to be free one way or the other. Uh, But even there, and and there's a program note from the playwright, which I thought was interesting, that when the enslaved characters in the play laugh, it is not light or fun. It's more like showing one's teeth. Their laughter is hostile and loud. Laughter is a weapon. And I think that's a really interesting thing in this play, too. There's mockery. And And I think that's part of what Martha finds so shocking, because this is upending her worldview. Yeah. I also want to say that um, I, I really was impressed by the uh, performance of Cindy Gold in the role of Martha Washington, as well as the entire ensemble. By my recollection, Nora Dunn was originally supposed to play this in 2020. I'm sure she would have been fine. I think Cindy Gold, who's long been, you know, has been a, a teacher as well as an actor in Chicago for many, many years, really makes this part her own. And let's pause here for a moment and listen to a clip from Steppenwolf's The Most Spectacularly Lamentable Trial of Ms. Martha Washington. In this scene, Ms. Washington is uh, in the midst of one of her fever dreams. Oh no! She's lost it! Martha! Honey! It's Betsy Ross! (laughs) 
Danielle Adams, you know us. But you're so... Just go with that. <laughs> Little trouble with the slaves, dear. Don't deny it, girl. We know. Tell us what's going on. Oh, I know what's been going on. Martha, honey, I told you it was a bad idea, and yet here we are. It's written all over your face. It is? Yes. But don't worry, girl. This is an intervention. We're going to work through all of this, and we are not leaving until we do. Of course we are. Now listen, I am not having a problem with my slaves. <laughs> girl. Everybody's talking about it. You know, that's why Johnny and I never got into that sort of foolishness. I just think it's not very nice to own people. Oh, it's not. And on top of all of that, it's just so many people to keep track of. I can barely keep track of my brood without adding 300 folks to the mix. I find them most helpful and hardworking. Well, I'm sure. That is, until things become clearer. Hmm? That was a clip from Steppenwolf Theater's new production of the most spectacularly lamentable trial of Ms. Martha Washington. We heard Cindy Gold playing Martha Washington, and also Celeste M. Cooper and Sidney Charles as Betsy Ross and Abigail Adams. The work of the ensemble, which requires them to do everything from sort of deconstructed minstrel routines to double dutch jump roping to yeah, all the uh aside from cindy gold as martha all of the cast played multiple roles except well and also Anne dandridge i don't think that actor plays anyone other than Anne, which is appropriate but the rest of the supporting ensemble has to do these really lightning quick costume changes and changes in tone and, and it's a very high energy production just yeah. physically yeah. Um, and it all just comes together I thought in a really brilliant and exhilarating which seems weird to say for a play about slavery <laughs> in its essence but there is something exhilarating about the way that the director have have framed this story. No you're quite right and uh, it's exhilarating it's entertaining and that's what I meant and energetic and fast that's what I meant uh, when I first said that the director uh, um, uh, approaches it, Whitney White, the director approaches it as if it were a musical, and she has a lot of musical, musical theater and experience in her background. I happen to note that. So I agree with you. It's an excellent production. It's a vibrant production. The mockery is part of its humor, and it, there deserves to be a mockery in this situation. So it sounds like two pretty strong recommendations. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Steppenwolf's The Most Spectacularly Lamentable Trial of Ms. Martha Washington continues through October 9th. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking to the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal. Next up, Jonathan, you have a critic's pick. I have a personal pick, a critic's pick. It is the world premiere of Chagall at School, staged by the Grippo Stage Company at Theater Wit on the Belmont, and it's running now through October 8th. This is a world premiere by James Sherman, playwright of such uh, substantial Chicago and off-Broadway hits as Bo Jest, The God of Isaac, and From Door to Door, a Chicago playwright. And this is about the famous painter Marc Chagall, whose, uh, s- several of whose works grace Chicago, the, the stained glass windows at the Art Institute, and his famous mosaic sculpture of the Four Seasons at the uh, uh, Chase Bank Plaza. I still want to call it the First National Bank Plaza, <laughs> but it hasn't been that for many years. Anyway, Chagall at school, this is not, not about his 
getting an education, except for in a roundabout or indirect way, it's the fact that Chagall was a Russian-born Jew, and when the Soviet Union was created, the success of the Bolshevik Revolution, he was appointed a People's Art Commissar and given the responsibility of opening a school of the arts, an art school, uh, in his hometown, the uh, town of Videpsk. He ran, headed the school for 18 months, from January 1919 to May 1920, and envisioned a school where all sorts of art would be taught, from traditional figure studies and life drawing, classical painting techniques to the most modern uh, cubism and um, uh, 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 art. And he ran into the conflict of art versus politics, not from the politicians, uh, you know, in command in, uh, in Moscow, not from Lenin and down the chain. He ran into opposition from his fellow artists who dogmatically embraced, uh, you know, Soviet rejection of all things they considered bourgeois, which included all representative art. So this is a play about all that, and it's delightful. I know that sounds like a lot of politics. It's a lot. It's art versus politics in the early Soviet Union. Typical of James Sherman's plays. It is warm-hearted. It is smart, and it is very, very human. It's 90 minutes. It's a good piece of work. It is a good company. It's my pick. Chagall at school, Ripple Stage Company at Theater with through October 8th. And I would say that's kind of a segue for the next piece of news we wanted to discuss, Jonathan, because James Sherman, as you well know, was long a member of the storied uh, Playwrights Ensemble at Victory Gardens Theater. Correct. And that... There's a playwrights ensemble that will not exist anymore, apparently in any form. We've kind of been talking with over the you know the past several months about well past couple of years really about uh, some of the upheavals and changes that have been taking place there. It sort of culminated in June with the dismissal of uh, Ken Matt Martin, the artistic director who'd been there for just a little over a year. There's been a lot of question as to what the board was planning to do, and they did announce uh, I think early last week that they are at this point planning to just become a presenting organization. So Victory Gardens as a producing organization, much less a producing organization fostering new work, will no longer be present in Chicago. And I, I don't know what to say about it, except that, it, frankly, it feels a little heartbreaking for me. It's heartbreaking. It is a total dereliction of responsibility to the public and donors over many years by the board of Victory Gardens theaters. They have offered absolutely no public explanations for their actions. They uh, have given no reasons for uh, the firing of Ken Matt Martin. They uh, have also laid off the entire rest of the staff, the remaining staff. All sources say it is not because of money that the theater is not in debt, that it is, it is uh, well not well healed. It is uh, on a firm financial footing. And the board has been a model of silence, obfuscation, and self-defense. They have offered no public ex yes. explanations. Now, it's important to say that they are perfectly within their legal authority and responsibilities to do this. They are, you know, that is the corporation, the board. It is not the staff, even the artistic director, whom the board hires. 
But nonetheless, this is simply uh, unresponsive to public outcry and demand and irresponsible. It smells to me a lot more about real estate than it does of art. I have to say, Jonathan, I'm not. Who do you think is going to rent that big a theater? I, when I think about the local companies, certainly Timeline is building their own space. American Blues, which I think last year did do their annual uh, "It's a Wonderful Life" radio play at the downstairs main stage space at Victory Gardens, but they are also building a new space. I really want to know what that business plan looks like because I, I am but a simple country lass, but I'm not sure <laughs> a lot of the itinerant or mid-sized companies in Chicago, you know, they're talking about renting it out at cost. Well, what are those costs? Because I can imagine even at cost, it's going to be beyond the budget of a lot of uh, companies that do not have a permanent home well, currently. Well, the Victory Gardens complex at the old historic Biograph Theater has two spaces. There is the right. larger space, the main stage is the is the uh, McVeigh Zacek Theater. It's about 250 seats. And then there's an upstairs a studio theater of about 100 seats, the Richard Christensen Theater. And that theater had a long-term resident company, Sideshow Theater Company. Right. Mm-hmm. And they had been scheduled to open a world premiere uh, at the end of August. And they canceled it because there no longer was staff at Victory Gardens to support the operation of the physical theater, and that's a right. great shame. Right, um, right. I think they've just poisoned the well so much, and I, I just wonder who will feel comfortable working there, who will feel yeah. comfortable take, bringing a show in there and then thinking, wait a minute, are they going to do something else? And then the staff walks out, and then we're left, you know, with an unstaffed theater, having already put out an outlay of cash to bring a show there. I, and again, we, we are only able to speculate, and I people could say this is just speculation, but this is what we are left with in light of the fact the board has not been very forthcoming. They did not yeah, provide yeah. reasons, according to Penn Matt Martin, and I've not seen any dispute on from this on this from the board that they never provided any reason, performance related, for why they were letting him go. And as you said, Jonathan, they are within their legal rights, but it definitely doesn't sit well with people when someone is brought in, particularly in the case of Ken Matt Martin, who is one of the few black leaders of a you know good sized important Tony Award-winning regional theater to be brought in with great fanfare of, look, look at all the wonderful things we're doing, look at how we're diversifying, and then to cut him loose after less, you know, not a little over a year, I think. Um, yeah. You know, that, that is definitely going to raise eyebrows, and it should, I mean, quite and frankly. It should. Yep, yep. The board, in what little they have said, uh, has indicated that at some point, unspecified, unknown, in the future, Victory Gardens might start producing its own shows mm-hmm. again, but that is completely open to the future and how things work out. They would then have to hire, a uh, obviously, an artistic director or a producing artistic director, whatever the title is. So right. for the moment, that's not, in, that's a, that's, that's not happening. And uh, I will tell you, Carrie, you were aware that in 2001, Victory Gardens Theater received the annual Tony Award for an outstanding regional theater. And they did not get it because of the beauty of their physical spaces and the companies they rented them out to. They got it because of their playwrights ensemble, the national impact mm-hmm. of those writers, and the dedication to American playwriting. Right. They got it for the art they produced. And, and I Victor would say... is no longer going to produce art. Well, damn it, they need to give that Tony Award back. And I feel strongly, too, that everyone, and I'm sure you've talked to playwrights, probably including James Sherman, over the years, has said, you know, not every play we wrote for Victory Gardens 
was a hit. You know, new plays are always a bit of a crapshoot. But what they got was the sense of an artistic home and of the support. And then it was never, oh, your last play didn't work out so well? Well, you're out, buddy. You know, that was never the tone that Dennis Zachuk and Marcy McVeigh had. Um, and I don't think that it was anything that anyone felt like should be happening to the playwrights ensemble. It was a laboratory. It's the A&R. It's where playwrights like James Ames get a chance to work out new things. Not that he was a member of that ensemble, but he's an example of an exciting voice that has come up, I'm sure, through a lot. You know, he's had a lot of productions in Philadelphia, his hometown. It's so crucial for keeping theater alive and fresh to have people who are willing to take those chances. I certainly think the space is beautiful. I just feel like it's just sitting there empty, and there's a little bit of an emptiness in our in our theatrical soul right now in Chicago, not to sound too highfalutin about it, but this is just the most confounding thing that I've seen in quite some time in this town, I have to say. Right. We'll have to keep watching. I'm, I'm sure there is uh, another chapter coming to this ongoing Victory Garden story. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. Thank you very much. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. The innovative spirit and unbridled sounds created by the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians are explored and celebrated in a new book titled Sound Experiments. Born in Chicago over 55 years ago, the AACM is revered across the globe for its mission of nurturing the creation of original music. There are a handful of books already out there about the Trailblazing Collective's history and influence, but St. Louis-based author Paul Steinbeck wanted to write something exclusively about the music that's emerged from the organization over the past five and a half decades. Steinbeck, a musician himself, has close ties with many of the artists involved with the AACM. He'll be in Chicago this coming week for an event at the Hyde Park Jazz Fest to talk about sound experiments. I recently caught up with Steinbeck to talk about the research that went into the book and his connection to the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. So we're going to get into the book and the origins of why you wrote this, but I wanted to go back a step even further because I know you had a connection with many of the AACM musicians during your time in Chicago. What initially attracted you to the organization? Well, the music was just something I never really heard anything like before, so it was just fascinating. I think my connection with the AACM begins when I moved to Chicago. I was a student at the University of Chicago, and I knew a little bit about jazz and some things like that, but when I came to Chicago and heard musicians from the AACM, it just you know blew my mind. And so I wanted to be involved. Uh, I started performing in a University of Chicago ensemble that was directed by Moata Bowden, who at the time had just finished a term as AACM uh, chair. I studied composition with him. He introduced me to Ari Brown, you know, for more composition lessons. Started studying bass with Harrison Bankhead, also of the AACM. Started listening to all the different AACM groups, you know, some that were in Chicago and some that were based elsewhere and it really just became the center of what I was doing as a as a performer as an aspiring composer and then later as a researcher and author so you know it's it was a, a wonderful musical universe that the ACM created beginning in the 1960s that continues to this day and it's just something I really always wanted to be involved in in, in any way possible and then obviously you get into this in your new book sound experiments but just for our, our listeners that maybe aren't as familiar 
what is it about the the AACM's approach to to creating music that that was so innovative and, and unique? Well, so many things. First of all, I just think it's about possibilities. You know, uh, when the members of the AACM got together in the 1960s, you know, many of them were excellent jazz improvisers. Many of them were composers or aspiring composers, but they didn't want to do anything, you know, creatively that just fit into a single box, whether it was jazz or experimental music or anything else. They wanted to create their own musical universe, and they set about doing exactly that. So you can, you know, go to the recordings from that period, from the 1960s, and hear a theme that sounds like it could be from New Orleans or from the Renaissance or from, you know, some other musical place. And then that'll go into an improvisation that's totally different, and that'll go into something else that's also completely different. So anything can happen in the music of the AACM, and anything often does happen. Uh, There are so many instruments that they introduced and new combinations that people have never heard before, new ways of playing standard instruments, new ways of composing. You know, it's just all about uh, possibilities and taking your creativity to the highest level. You know, and as a curious musician myself, there was no way, you know, no way I could ignore all this fantastic stuff that had been happening in Chicago for many, many years. So there have been books written about the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians before, including one written by you that focuses on the Art Ensemble of Chicago. But with this new book, Sound Experiments, you really wanted to do a deeper dive into the music specifically? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, again, a lot of people have been writing about the AACM, but no one had really sort of taken on the challenge of attempting to, you know, take a pretty broad view of all the different musicians, composers, ensembles, that came from the AACM and trying to assess what they had in common and, and how they, you know, developed their own you know, individual ways of making music. So what I do in the book is I choose 10 different pieces by AACM composers and AACM bands. Uh, these go from the 1960s to the present day, and I try to, you know, figure out what they have in common. I try to trace back some of the, their creative practices to what the AACM did back in the 1960s, And I try to show how all those different innovations and and, uh, new ways of thinking about music and sound, you know, went in all these different directions. So it goes back to the beginnings of the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians and goes all the way to the present day and just tries to show all the different things they contributed to the world of music. And so, yeah, the the format uh, after the introduction, each chapter focuses on these AACM pieces. Was it a challenge doing that curation and deciding what 10 you were going to focus on? Yeah, it was definitely uh, one of the biggest challenges, uh, aside from the actual writing of the book, which is kind of a, you know, it's kind of a marathon, as as any writer will will be able to tell you. You know, I tried to balance, you know, a lot of different considerations. I wanted to have pieces from every decade of the AACM's history. I wanted to have pieces by a lot of different major, you know, AACM figures, rather than just focusing on a few I wanted to show all the different types of, you know, instrumentation and ensembles that AACM composers wrote for. So there's solo pieces, there's pieces for small groups, there's pieces for very, very large ensembles and everything in between. There are pieces that have kind of a literary or narrative component. There are pieces that are more just about taking sound and putting it into new and interesting combinations. So I really tried to show the diversity of the AACM's approach and all the different things that they've created over the years, you know, but that was definitely a challenge. I could have chosen a bunch of different pieces and still, you know, written sort of the same book, but I'm pretty happy with the 10 that I chose. If you're just tuning in, 
This is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with author Paul Steinbeck about his new book, Sound Experiments, which dives deep into the music created by the AACM. I know a tremendous amount of research went into this, looking at archival work uh, and the past compositions and recordings, but you also conducted a number of first-person interviews with living members of the AACM. Did this help get an even deeper understanding of how some of these pieces were created? Yes, and that was absolutely essential to do because, you know, some things aren't obvious until you actually talk to someone who was there. Uh, talk to the closer, talk to some of the performers, or, or all of the above. But there was definitely an archival component and definitely other, you know, aspects of research. One thing that was really important for me was to get a, whole, get a hold of as many scores and as many sketches as possible so you can see the piece sort of develop from its initial sketch form to the score, to the way the musicians recorded it in the studio or, re- or played it on stage. So, you know, basically every type of evidence, every type of information, you know, was something I was going to try to assemble uh, to talk, you know, talk about these pieces and tell the story behind each piece. The book takes a chronological approach highlighting music from the 60s all the way to almost present day. How has the AACM's music-making practice evolved over the years? AACM members are building on what came before, so it's not just strictly, you know, out of nothing. There's often building on a tradition. Uh, To give you an example, one of the things that the AACM was known for early on was something uh, that people call multi-instrumentalism. Instead of, you know, a musician specializing in just one instrument, you often have people like Roscoe Mitchell or Anthony Braxton, Douglas Ewart, that have, you know, developed really distinctive voices on dozens of different instruments, from traditional, you know, woodwinds and strings and percussion to, you know, unusual instruments they have may, maybe invented themselves or curated themselves in different combinations. And that's been, you know, a trademark of the AACM uh, from, from, from the beginning, from the 1960s. But by the time you get to the 1980s, you have people like George Lewis who are sort of taking multi, multi-instrumentalism in a totally different direction. He also, you know, played all kinds of different instruments, but he was also interested in computer music. So in the 1980s, he developed this piece called Voyager, where you have a human musician that improvises with a computer program that he had, that he designed himself, and this computer program has access through samples and synthesizers to even more instruments than any AACM member, even the most ambitious AACM member, would have been able to play. So you can improvise with Voyager using a saxophone or a piano or whatever, and Voyager can, you know, give you hundreds of instruments, you know, back in response. So that's that's an example of taking this concept of multi-instrumentalism that AACM members developed in the 60s and using technology to take it in a totally different direction. You also have the option of just bringing different types of musicians into your ensemble. So also in the book, I talk about uh, Nicole Mitchell's wonderful piece from 2015, Mandorla Awakening 2, where she has a bunch of musicians in her Black Earth ensemble, some of which are AACM affiliated, some of which aren't. And by the different instruments that these, you know, men and women play, you get an even more, you know, diverse uh, instrumental palette, you know, still going with that multi-instrumental tradition, but just doing it by bringing different types of musicians together who had never performed together before. So there's all kinds of ways, compositionally, technologically, conceptually, of taking an idea and just, you know, doing it in, in new and exciting ways every decade. And that's exactly what this book, Sound Experiments, tries to show. And there is this 
thought that the AACM is uh, avant-garde and kind of on, on the fringes. What are some examples of how the AACM's approach to creativity has bled into maybe more traditional forms of jazz or other types of music? I think the AACM has been hugely influential in Chicago and New York and around the world. I think there are people like Roscoe Mitchell, George Lewis, Nicole Mitchell, who, you know, basically are new types of musicians that did not exist before the AACM. And now more and more people are trying to do what they do. These people are, you know, triple threats, quadruple threats. They can perform at the highest level. They can improvise at the highest level. They can read a score, you know, interpret really difficult notated music at the highest level. They can compose themselves in all kinds of different formats, styles, and approaches. And this is what this is somebody that you know somebody like Roscoe would call call this a super musician. You can do anything as a performer, as a composer, as an improviser. And really, in the world of music, we hadn't seen a whole lot of you know people who had that level of versatility, that level of virtuosity, that level of creativity in every sort of style. So if you look at to me the most exciting young musicians, people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, whether they're in Chicago, New York, or somewhere else in the world, the most exciting people in jazz, classical music, experimental music, are basically doing the sort of thing that did not exist before the AACM. They have, you know, this incredible diversity of talent, this you know ability to perform anything, compose anything, you know, create music that no one had ever even conceived of before, and that's a model of musician, a type of being, a you know, a type of becoming a musician, a type of you know being someone who works with music, with sound. That's the type of thing that the AACM really put together in the 60s out of nothing, you know, and, and here we are now, and the world of music basically looks more like the AACM, you know, and that's a remarkable achievement. The Hyde Park Jazz Fest is coming up. The AACM was born on the south side of Chicago, so there's a definite connection between those communities. You'll be participating in a a special program at this year's festival? That's right, yeah. We're doing a uh, book release celebration on Saturday, September 24th. We're going to do a book signing at 1 o'clock. Then I'll be speaking about the book at 1.30. And then we'll keep signing books and meeting, greeting people until about 3 p.m. This is going to take place at the Logan Center on 60th Street uh, on the south side. It's part of the High Park Jazz Festival, so you can come down at 1 p.m. for the book signing and then go and hear the rest of the festival and enjoy your Saturday. Paul Steinbeck is the author of Sound Experiments, the music of the AACM. Thanks so much for uh, making time to talk with us. Thanks, Gary. I appreciate it. Hope to see you at the Hyde Park Jazz Festival on Saturday. You can find Sound Experiments at a number of local bookstores, or you can go online to the publisher's website at press.uchicago.edu. Paul Steinbeck will be at the Hyde Park Jazz Fest on Saturday afternoon at the Logan Center Screening Room. And WDCB will have a booth set up at this year's festival both days. So if you're out at the Hyde Park Jazz Fest, stop by and say hi. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Some sad news this week. Jazz pianist, three-time Grammy winner, and NEA jazz master Ramsey Lewis passed away at his home in Chicago on Monday, September 12th. He was 87 years old. His son Bobby Lewis told the Associated Press that his father died peacefully in his sleep. 
Lewis was born in 1935. He grew up in Chicago's Cabrini Green Housing Project and began taking piano lessons at age four. As he got older, Lewis began playing with a number of local ensembles before eventually forming the Ramsey Lewis Trio with drummer Isaac Red Holt and bassist L.D. Young. In 1956, they released their first album, Ramsey Lewis and His Gentlemen of Jazz, on the chess label. Nine years later, Lewis broke through in a big way with the crossover hit, The In Crowd. A recording of the trio's performance of the Dobie Gray song in Washington, D.C. was released as a 7-inch single and ended up selling 1 million copies. He scored follow-up hits with a cover of the McCoy's Hang On Sloopy and a funkier version of an African-American spiritual made famous by the staple singers, Wade in the Water. Lewis continued performing and composing over the decades. He started a broadcasting career that began with him hosting a morning show on a local smooth jazz station. He also hosted a syndicated radio show called Legends of Jazz, which you can still hear right here on WDCB Sundays at noon. In recent years, Lewis was involved with programming Ravinia's jazz concerts and making music of his own. He'll always be a favorite son of Chicago. He was born, raised, and lived in the city his entire life. Renowned pianist and composer Ramsey Lewis passed away this week. He'll be greatly missed. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m., right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.